sadly, Josh has decided that baseball is more important than friendship. I'm hurt. I'm I'm also hurting a little bit. Um, but you know what can you do? Everyone's got their priorities. It totally came out of left field. <laughs> was that an accurate baseball reference? Yeah, that was so good. That was so good. I feel so proud of myself right now. Uh, <laughs> that was an amazing one. That was so good. We need to like put in applause. <laughs> Anyway, yes, so Josh is uh, is sadly not joining us this week. Um but that's okay. We we have some uh, some news to uh, to catch up on and uh, we may as well dive right in. One of the things that caught my eye was um I don't know if you noticed that uh, Visco somehow opened a studio. Uh this is something that that just sort of came out of uh, also out of left field for me. Yeah. Um because I, like on the on the coattails of the their previous news of shutting down the sync service which we found uh pretty dumb. Um now they've they've opened this studio and the cool thing is that it's actually free. Um so the way that they've done it is they they basically had a preview program of some sort where you could sign up with details of your project and they were giving out um I think it was 2 hour slots or something like that in the space. Right. And um the space itself is is like a you know beautiful well stocked photography studio in New York City and uh, they have some I think they had some lighting equipment as well some soft boxes and things that that sort of come with the space. Um but you don't have to pay anything to use it which uh, which is great. And so this is kind of part of their um their whole attitude of of giving back to creators and you know investing in creators and things like that. So this is a really nice move. I think this is a very um th- this puts a positive light on them after the whole sync thing. So maybe that was why they did this <laughs> the way that they did as a sort of one two punch. Yeah, I think I think they're feeling a little bit I think they're feeling a little bit apologetic to their <laughs> to their fan base and the, their user base. And I don't know if you've ever tried to rent a studio space in New York City, but it is prohibitively expensive. So the little detail that it's free, it's actually for most people I'm sure it's going to be the bulk of the attractive because oh, oh for sure. It doesn't really have any particularly awesome features other than it's completely white. So if you like that sort of thing that's cool but at the end of the day it's just a studio i mean it doesn't look like it has anything special uh but like is like i said it's free uh, so naturally they had like a, a, an amazing number of uh, requests to to work in the studio and right now it says on the website that they're now they're no longer accepting applications so yeah i guess they'll open it up again uh, at a later time when the schedule frees up a little bit So if you if you if you want to try it if you're in the city and want to give it a uh, give it a shot pay attention to the website because it's likely that they're going to give some sort of notice there but uh yeah it's it's an interesting uh idea definitely Yeah to me to me it's the the idea that is great and hopefully uh, like I think the problem is that it's very difficult for any company to be able to offer this right because they also have to worry about um insurance and you you are liable for right. anything that that breaks or you know stuff like that but still it's uh, you know they're they're offering this amazing space I'm sure the real estate costs them a lot of money um just on its own so the fact that they're able to fund this through another business is great yeah. um But yeah, it's you know, it's a very nice uh, gesture on their part and I look forward to seeing how the idea evolves over time because like you said they're they're they were so overwhelmed that it's already um shut down again until the first uh, group of projects moves through it. So I don't know if they're going to have 
you know, to change their system or do something to make it, you know, more sustainable in the long run. But um, until that point, it's just, it's a great idea and kudos to them for being willing to, um, you know, take a loss, but make something really great for the photography community, at least in New York City. Yeah. And I'm actually noticing something on one of the pictures now. It's too bad Josh isn't here with us today because they actually have an Ames chair. Oh <laughs> uh, boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'd be thrilled. It's a pretty cool looking one. It's actually yeah. not even a small studio. Like it's not a like you said, there's nothing particularly unique about it, but it's not like it's a tiny space either. It's it's a healthy sized photo studio with a great backdrop. So Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I, I would love to work in there for a few hours, no doubt about it. Yeah, me too. We should sign up uh, now and then buy our plane tickets. Yeah, for 2020 or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> Drew Kaufman, who is a friend of the show, and you guys have heard him before, um, he asked us a question about Instagram stories. Um, well, actually, he just sort of solicited a, a reaction from us, which we provided on Twitter, but I, I think we should probably talk in a little more detail. So Instagram stories, what what is this thing? Well, this is a sort of the Instagram version of the Snapchat app. Like Snapchat has these stories where you share pictures and they disappear after a set amount of time passes. So it's sort of built in obsolescence, whatever the word is. Obsolescence, yeah. Obsolescence into photos. And that's that's actually very appealing because sometimes you're out with friends. You're not necessarily making the smartest choices in your life. And you decide <laughs> to share moments that could end up, in, in, in some people's opinion, uh, being a bit embarrassing or something like that. So to have the ability to make everyone forget about those, you know, after 24 hours or so, it's, it's actually a very interesting, um, a very interesting option. And so far, I haven't really looked into it. I haven't been using it myself, but every now and then when, when I scroll in my timeline and I see that some people, you, you get a, like an outline on their profile picture. Yeah that yeah. informs you, that lets you know that that person is active uh, on stories, that they have new stories for you to see. And when you tap, it, it just takes over the screen and it shows you a timeline flicking through their different pictures or their different videos that they've uh, uploaded to their stories. And uh, the, the the design and the experience, I think, is pretty good. But I just it, it I don't feel like it fits within the rest of the app. I mean, I'm not sure... To me, it kind of breaks the Instagram experience a little bit, or at least the way that I that I'm used to to looking at Instagram. So I haven't been that that into it, to be honest. But I'm sure many people will love it. And I mean, Snapchat is insanely popular for a reason, right? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you should say that because one of the things that I admire most about this version of the stories concept is how well they've integrated it into the classic Instagram experience without getting it. Um, without getting in the way of it. Because realistically, if you think about it, what's changed is that now when you open Instagram and you're at the very top of your timeline, you see the little floating heads with stories. But as soon as you start scrolling, other than the highlights around the usernames, there really isn't a clear indication that there's a, a you know an entirely new area of the app. Right. Um, which is in stark contrast to Snapchat, where the memories feature, uh, or sorry, the stories feature, not the memories feature. Uh, the stories feature to me has always felt like a totally different app that's just sort of attached to the main Snapchat app. And I'm personally, I'm of the opinion that the Snapchat app uh, is terribly designed Oh yeah. Um, in general. It's just, it's very frustrating to use. Um, I, I like the, the concept is fantastic. You know, I got used to it, 
but it's overwhelmingly unpleasant as a first experience for everybody that I've shown the app to. Everyone I've introduced the app to, there's just, there's no, it's not intuitive to get around at all. So I think that what Instagram has done, they, they've done an excellent job of taking this new feature, um, well, quote unquote new feature, because they've been getting a lot of flack for, you know, stealing it from Snapchat and so on. I, I don't really care about that discussion. <laughs> I think they've actually implemented it better. You know, they did stories better than Snapchat. And quite frankly, I like Instagram as a network, as a uh, as an experience a lot better than I do Snapchat. So for me, um, the fact that Instagram now covers both of those bases, you know, the, the more um, formal profile, permanent images kind of thing, as well as this more ephemeral stories-based um, timeline thing. I, I think both of that, both of those things have come together really nicely. And the fact that they both now live in Instagram, to me, has made Snapchat um, redundant, effectively. Um, now, having said that, I, I have a lot of people on Snapchat who um, are, you know, big fans of that, and I don't see them necessarily switching to Instagram Stories yet. I think that's actually the most interesting part of this from. Um, from a business perspective is just seeing how many people, um, because there's a lot of overlap in people who use Snapchat and people who use Instagram. So it'll be interesting to see if this is going to make people, uh, like, are people going to start posting stories on both or what's, you know, how, how's the, how are the two going to interact now? Because it used to be the case that they were very different products. Now that's not as much the case anymore. So it'll be interesting. I don't know where I stand yet. I, I, I would like to ditch Snapchat entirely, but again, I just have so many people who, uh, for whom it has become a sort of de facto informal communication tool that I I can't ditch it. Right. Yet. Right. I don't know how the market will react to it to to both products coexisting, but there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, as far as Instagram is concerned, the stories are their attempt to capture the primary demographic of Snapchat users, which is the teen community. Yeah. And those are the most valuable demographic in all of mobile uh, apps and mobile traffic in general, because they're incredibly active, they're incredibly engaged with the apps that they use, and they're younger, so they're going to be users for longer than, than us old people, right? Yeah. Yep. So yep. this is clearly, very clearly, an attempt to get their own app to be more popular among that segment of the population. And of course, they'll take any side benefits that may come with it but i'm not sure if they're gonna succeed or not but it's definitely what they're what they're after yeah i mean it's probably not going to be an immediate exodus or anything like that but i do suspect that over time um, snapchat is going to lose some people because there are a lot of people who are only using snapchat because that kind of functionality existed um, but they didn't really enjoy the the app overall um, the experience of using it things like that so we'll see um, just to circle back to Drew's question, though, because when when he initially asked this, I answered it with a grumpy face, and um, the reason <laughs> I did so is because I was I was still um, reacting to the fact of them um, sort of taking this concept wholesale from Snapchat. I was very worried that um, something like that would not fit very well into Instagram. Um, I, you know, I, I was. Concerned that it would affect the way that Instagram operates as a community right now, because we, you know, on a recent episode, we were talking about how um, how much more pleasant the Instagram um, network is in general, yes, um, versus something like Twitter, and and I, I was worried that this might um, dilute that or or something like that, and I guess we'll see over time. 
Um, but I've, I've really come around to, to appreciating this because having used it, like I said, I think that the people who don't care about it, who don't want to use it, it really doesn't impact their usage of the app. It doesn't change the fundamental timeline operation. It doesn't add a new tab or anything like that. It's just something that now emerges if you know where to look for it. And, and I think that's really the best of both worlds. Yeah, exactly. And the, the critical benefit of this implementation is that you can use your app your Instagram app, just as you've always done. And if you want, you you can never see even one story. Exactly. If, if you don't want to, they are completely separate from the main app. So just don't click on them. And it's like they never existed. So that's a very, a very interesting decision. If they're trying to push people to use the app, uh, the, the feature, sorry, they could have been a lot more bold in, in how they designed it into the app but this restraint shows that they've i don't know if they're fearful or respectful uh, of their existing customers but in any way i think it's reasonable and uh, and i for one i'm happy that they that they chose to do it this way yeah i i'm gonna go ahead and interpret it as respect for their customers because that's uh that's what it feels like um but again over time we'll see how it evolves but for now drew the answer to your question seems to be that we're both uh we're both pretty happy with it. I think it's it's something that um, we have to spend a lot more time exploring be- before we can, you know, have a a more concrete opinion. But um, I'm really personally, I've really come around to liking what I'm seeing in Instagram's version of Stories. Yeah. So on the total opposite end of the spectrum, companies not respecting their users. Oh boy. <laughs> we found a piece of news uh, that showed up on Reddit and. Um, it has to do with a very popular image hosting and uh, marketplace platform called Zenfolio that, uh, unfortunately, I bet a, a number of our listeners are uh, customers. So this poor Reddit user is writing for the second time about this issue that he's had where apparently he is a photographer who um, sells prints through his Zenfolio-based website, which is great. You know, that's what it's for. Yep. However, Zenfolio has recently um, and and invisibly snuck out an update to their platform that adds a banner to the top of his web page that asks visitors to, you know, go make prints or go make print products. And his assumption, as mine would have been, was that this, of course, just links them to his own print store attached to his own Zenfolio website. When it turns out that what actually happens is they're taken to Zenfolio's version of it, where they make the bulk of the profit. And this turns really ugly because in his particular case, the client paid for something like $1,000 or $1,200 worth of print work. And of that, he got $100 yeah. because it went through this system instead. It's a terrific deal. This was entirely invisible to the client too, right? They thought that they were buying prints and supporting their photographer, right? Like that's the assumption. It's on his website. Right. But no, in fact, they just spent a whole ton of money lining the pockets of Zenfolio and he got, you know, 10% of it. And it's the second time that this has happened to this poor photographer. Yeah. This actually happened with a similar sum of money some months back. And he tried to, you know, drum up some outrage um, and talk to the company and, you know, figure out how this was happening, how they could possibly allow it to happen. And the, um, the answers that they got, um, uh, personally, I think they're just offensively um, evasive and and just bad. Um, 
you know, they, they said, oh, yeah, maybe we should have made it opt-in or something like that. But, you know, oh, well, our CEO didn't want that, so too bad. Yeah. Um, which is just gross. I mean, the whole situation just strikes me as such a blatant um, uh, mishandling of of client respect and it's insulting it's 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 incredibly insulting for their for their customers uh, and i have a question because i'm i'm I, I wasn't completely clear in the reddit thread and i'm not sure but the albums that those uh, clients uh, ordered through the website uh, were those made up of these photographers pictures or were yes. entirely different pictures that symfolio hosts on their on their site no that's the worst part is it's his pictures. Right. Right. Because it says they're offering their albums to my clients on my website. So that led me to think that it was entirely different albums that might not con might contain pictures from other photographers. And that's that's that was my original interpretation of it. Yeah. My understanding of it is that they have different album products. So he's got a particular setup and he set particular prices with whatever print fulfillment system he's you know, got going on right. through Zenfolio. And then Zenfolio separately has opened up their own version of it with their own profit margins, their, their own options. Presumably it's the same, you know, fulfillment center, whatever, but it's them making the profit. The gross part is that uh, as far as I understand from the comments here, they're allowing the client to use the photographer's images. So they're getting the album that they should be buying from the photographer right. from Zenfolio instead. So they're profiting off of his images to a tremendous degree and giving him a tiny fraction of it. They're, In other words, they're competing with their own customers. Yeah, it's, it's unreal. I mean, I'm going as far as to say that it, this should be illegal. I'm sure it's not because there's surely some fine print, like minuscule print that... Uh, says that you forfeit all of your rights when you sign up for Zenfolio. Right, yeah. But it should be illegal. Like, There's no way they should be able to get away with this. And if they do, like, like they, it surely looks like they will. But if they do, I mean, this, uh, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. I would definitely start by canceling my account if I had one. Yeah. And, and trying to get this out to as many people as I possibly could, you know, because... A company that does this deserves no customers, really. Yeah, and ultimately that's why we're talking about it because I saw this and I was like, you know what, we we have to bring some attention to a case like this because it's just, it's not okay. Yeah. Um, and I have a feeling that, again, there are other customers who are affected and maybe they just didn't manage to um, write about it yet or they haven't noticed or anything like that. But I do urge you, if you are a Zenfolio customer, be careful of this. Um, or if you have a different perspective on it, if we've misunderstood something, by all means, let us know. Um, but as far as we can tell from the information presented, this is just a, a, a horrible situation. And um, in light of that, I think we should probably leave you guys with some recommendations for alternatives to Zenfolio, um, because I know that if I was a customer, I would be trying to move my stuff elsewhere um, ASAP. So Yeah, yeah. Well, at least they gave him a hundred bucks, right? Yeah, at least. They could have paid him in exposure. Yeah, God. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, moving on, let's let's direct our good listeners to some more respectful companies that are, are willing to treat them with the respect they deserve. So what do you got? Uh, so the first up is, of course, Smug Mug, which should be familiar to most of you because it's uh, Zenfolio's biggest competitor, I think. Those two are, are pretty much vying for 
um, control of this particular market. Um, I was a Smug Mug user for several years. Um, I basically liked everything about their platform except the way that it looked. Uh, they've recently made it look a lot better than when I was using it. Um, so it's a very good option. Um, again, I, I have no complaints about the way that they treated me during my time with them. Um, I have since moved on. I now use a service called Pixie Set, which I think is less well known, but I find it to be very, um, very straightforward. Um, it does not offer to do the whole like backup your entire photo archive forever thing. It's not for that. It's right. it's explicitly for delivering photos to clients. And that's actually all I need it for. So for me, it just makes more sense. It's a more focused product. Um, but what I really appreciate about them is not only is it a well-built product and a very um, nice to look at product that my clients really find intuitive, um, it's also very constantly updated. So I actually, just before we hopped on the call, I got an email from them rolling out new updates to their analytics, um, new tutorial videos that are accessible through a help button so that if your client um, cannot figure out how to download their photos and whatever it is that they're trying to do, they now have a very, very robust help system to make sure that the client doesn't have to always ask you, oh, how do I do this? How do I do that? It's all on the website right there in the interface for them. So just these sorts of um, thoughtful updates um, just make me very happy that I'm uh, that I'm a customer. So Pixie Set is great. It definitely looks very, very nice. Yeah, it looks really good. And I've actually had people comment that the, you know, the the presentation of the delivery was something that they liked and how easy it was to favorite and download specific images or the whole set or whatever it is. So yeah, very happy with them. Cool. Um, I also recently discovered one called CloudSpot, which seems to be a slightly more, um, it, it's not actually an open source product, but that seems to be the attitude that they have. It's very self-effacing. Um, you know, you don't, you never see their branding, um, but it's it seems like a very comparable tool. Same idea. It's it's very much focused on the delivery of photos rather than necessarily um, a supplementary backup or like build your website on this platform or whatever. Like it's not a, an all in one right. type thing, but it appears to do an amazing job at the delivery side of things. Um, I haven't tried it yet, but it's it is worth mentioning because it comes up a lot in discussions where people are asking for um, other alternatives. Um, I don't know, have, which one do you use or do you sort of roll your own or what's the, because photo delivery to clients is a big topic on its own. Yeah, I typically tend to do this myself. Like I work with the client through email or whatever. I haven't needed uh, a dedicated platform like this because I don't advertise my photography services on the web. I just deal with local people. Yeah. So it becomes less of an issue when you do it that way. But uh not to get a sidetrack or anything, but I I still find it a little bit unbelievable that we still don't have one platform that covers the entire spectrum, including the backup part that you mentioned before, because that's arguably one of the most important aspects of any photography business. And it's, it seems like with the wealth of companies and services and apps that are out there, one of them should have nailed it by now. And... I don't know of anyone that has, so it's it's surprising to me. Well, I think SmugMug is probably SmugMug is probably the closest to to that ideal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's their definitely. ambition, certainly. So, it's uh, yeah, it, it is a tricky thing though because there are so many moving parts to a product like that. Like, there's so many different facets of oh, trying yeah. to be the be all and end all for professional photographers. Um, so for me, yeah, it just it made more sense over time to stick to a more modular setup where the website is 
different from the print system, from the delivery, from whatever. Uh, Pixie Set, by the way, does also allow you to facilitate um, print purchases and things like that. So actually those two are together for me. But um, yeah, either way, those are some alternatives. If you are a Zenfolio user, again, um, sorry to be the bearer of bad news if you didn't know about this. Um, if you do know about it or haven't encountered it, or you know if we got something wrong, again, do let us know. Um, we don't want to paint a, a one-sided picture here, but um, from, from the evidence that we have on hand right now, this seems like a gross situation, and we're very sorry that the uh, community is affected by it. Right. And if anybody from Zenfolio is listening, it's not too late to do the right thing here. I mean, it's never too late. Yeah. But I, I just believe, strongly believe that a change of direction and a strong reaction from the company is needed at this point. Yeah, I certainly would, would need that to, to ever consider trusting them again. Yeah. All right. Cool. So that was our that was our follow up. We did again okay this time. Cut it down to twenty five minutes. We're getting better. Yeah. <laughs> um, we still have a long way to go, but yeah, I think I think we're making progress. Yeah. This is all on you though this week because you've got a whole. You've been so freaking busy. And I've been busy shooting and traveling yeah. and yeah, man. Yeah. So tell me all about it. Well, in case uh, you're not reading my website or following me on Twitter, I've been on a couple of trips recently where I've had the opportunity to test new photography gear. And uh, I have a lot of impressions that uh, have uh, evolved as a result of those trips. Uh, I've changed some opinions on some, on some of my existing gear. I've uh, made entirely new opinions on gear that I hadn't tried before. So we're going to try and discuss a little bit of everything that I touched on over the past few weeks. And I hope I don't get too meta <laughs> or anything. So I'm going to have to count on you, Marius, to rein me in if I, if I get stranded too far. Yeah, don't worry. I'm on it. I'm on it. Okay, so let me start by telling you about a new lens that I've had a chance to try. And it's a lens that falls completely outside of my comfort zone. Uh, I've mentioned here on the show a few times before that I'm more of a people person than a landscape person. So I tend to favor the telephoto range of, of the short telephoto, I mean, uh, from 85 to 135, which is the focal range that is typically associated with portraits. I also like standard and moderate wide angles, uh, like 35, 50. Those are focal lengths that I really like because they allow me to show a little bit more in the, in the frame. So uh, they feel very natural to me. But up until recently, I had never shot with, a, with an ultra-wide angle. Uh, and it's a very unique uh, focal range because it completely changes perspective and the way that you have to look at, at your picture. Because the camera effectively sees more than you do. Yeah. So you're looking at a, at a landscape and when you shoot it with a wide angle, with an ultra-wide angle, a lot of stuff that you weren't counting on shows up in the picture. And to me, that's a little bit confusing sometimes. Uh, so it, it takes some getting used to. Uh, but I wanted, I wanted to, to give it a shot. And uh, I rented for... I've, I've recently spent... Uh, I spent the past week in Lisbon, Portugal, which is like... Uh, it's a four-hour drive from my city. Right. And I rented the Sony 16 to 35 millimeter zoom lens uh, because that... I, I thought that would give me the entire ultra-wide angle range so that I could play with it. I thought about renting a Prime instead. Uh, white prime instead, but I was a little bit worried that it might be too limiting, especially considering that I'm not experienced in in shooting uh, those type of those type of pictures. Yeah, and it also would have sort of forced you to use that focal length, whereas at least with the zoom, you were able to um, have a choice without having to switch lenses, so it's less frustrating. Exactly, exactly. So, like I said, my previous experience as far as 
uh, ultra wide angles go was limited to 24 millimeters, which is the widest uh, focal length that my existing uh, 24 to 70 zoom covers. Uh, and I I was uh, looking at pictures from recent trips before leaving for this one. And to my surprise, I actually shot more than I thought I had at the 24 millimeter end. Like I, if I had, if somebody had asked me before looking it up on the computer, I would have said that the majority of my pictures were from 28 uh, or longer than that. But it turned out there were a, a fair, uh, a fair amount of them that, that that were shot at 24. So that was a bit surprising, and that's what made me curious to try even wider and see how I liked it. And th there was also the fact that the 16 to 35 is widely considered to be a much better lens than my 24 to 70. And the wide angle is the weakest part of my 24 to 70. So I kind of felt that I was missing out on some image quality with my existing lens. And I wanted to verify just how much of a difference there was comparing it to a lens that is considered to be superior optically. Yeah. And uh, it turns out there is a difference between both at the 24 millimeter focal length. There's a clearly a noticeable difference and the 16 to 35 is better. So that much is true. Uh, but it took me like three, four days out of the seven that I spent there. It took me like three, four days to become comfortable shooting with a 16 to 35. I, I had to force myself to keep using it because all the time I was thinking if I had the 24 to 70, I would definitely want to go longer than what I'm shooting right now. I was I was limited at 35. And I had the 24 to 70 with me, I just decided not to use it. Yeah, honestly, I'm a little surprised it was only three days because I remember when, when I first shot with a wide angle, it was like rewiring my whole brain. It took me weeks to, to start, uh, well, actually to stop trying to think of everything in terms of the the images that I was used to getting with, uh, with telephoto lenses. I, I kept searching for those shots and being frustrated that I couldn't get them with a wide angle instead of looking for shots where the wide angle is actually, you know, uh, favorable. Right. So that just took me forever to just wrap my brain around it and get it to stop um, thinking only in terms of, of longer focal ranges. So I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely still have some some getting used to, 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 to do because it's, I mean, I'm nowhere near comfortable. I mean, I, I could, I, I got to the point where I didn't hate every single picture that I took which I consider to be a, a small win. That's progress, yeah. Because for the first couple of days, yeah, for the first couple of days, it, it was like, yuck. I, I, every picture I took was like, why do, why do things look that way? Like, it was very weird. But anyway, I, I got through that phase, mostly, I think, because I forced myself to keep and keep shooting, and I shot like a fair amount of pictures. It was a... It hasn't been a... I wouldn't say it's been a photography trip, because... I was on a more relaxed uh, mindset, but I, I took every chance that I got to to take the camera out and take as many pictures as I could. And of course, when you're on a beautiful landscape, on a beach or whatever, the wide angle fits very nicely, yep. but it's just too wide. I mean, one thing that drove me nuts is in order to avoid the vertical distortion, like when, when, you, when you take a picture pointing the camera upwards and you see all the vertical lines converging towards the center of the frame yep. <laughs> that's that's perspective yep. distortion and that's that was driving me nuts because in order to avoid it you have to hold the camera completely level but if you do that with an ultra wide angle you're basically taking a picture of your feet because the entire bottom of the of the picture is ground is is 
nothing. If you want to take a picture of a building, it's it's just very difficult to do. And I was the only way I could make my peace with it was reminding myself that I could crop later. Like the the parts of the pictures that I don't like, I'll just take them out later in post and that then be done with that, right? So I, I didn't try to frame the building perfectly in the middle of the shot where I would want it to appear in the final picture. I had to take into account that I would be cropping the picture later. And for me, that took some getting used to. Did you um, experiment at all with uh, with correcting perspective distortion in Lightroom or Photoshop? Because they've, they've got some very sophisticated tools now for, uh, you know, compensating for exactly that kind of distortion. And I found um, there were a, a number of shots, not recently, but when I was first shooting with the 10 to 24 um, where I basically rescued the shots with those tools and they worked a lot better than I expected that they would. Yeah. So I just wondered if you you tried them at all for those yeah. kinds of situations. Yeah, and even though I was trying to be careful, I, I still need to apply some corrections to, to these pictures. Definitely, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, unless you're shooting with a tripod and a bubble level and making absolutely sure that your camera is perfectly parallel to the ground and all that, some amount of perspective correction is... I would say inevitable, and it's true that these tools work very, very good, very well. And I have used them in the past, but I wanted to try to use them as as little as I could because you lose some resolution. You're stretching pixels at the top of the image and compressing them at the bottom, so it can be noticeable when you look at a picture and it has excessive software correction. It can, it can definitely you can totally tell that that happened. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I'm not a I'm not a big fan of that look. But I would rather have that than a, a twisted building, definitely. But yeah, I was I was just trying to be careful and, and try to minimize the the amount of software corrections that I would have to apply later. Uh, I'm I'm fine with cropping, but then when I when I noticed is that I got hooked on doing panoramas with this lens because ah. <laughs> in order to avoid shooting at the super 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 wide 16 millimeter end, I would shoot at something like 28 to 30. And then take three or four pictures and and just stitch them together in post. And the results have been pretty good, I have to say. So I'm 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 very happy with how that turned out. Uh, so overall, I have good feelings about the lens. I mean, I'm happy with it. I wouldn't consider buying it myself because I just I'm not sure I would use it. I mean, what I would really like to own is an, uh, a superb 24 to 70 zoom. Because the difference between 16 and 24 millimeters is just not relevant to me. If if my 24 to 70 zoom was optically as good as this one is, I would be absolutely happy with it, and I would I would never consider owning the 16 to 35 lens because it just wouldn't add that much value to me or interest to me personally. Right. Uh, I would probably if if I wanted to go wider than that, I would probably buy uh, the the twenty one Loxia or the eighteen or the twenty five Batis lenses, which are yeah. they are nice. They are optically even better than the zoom. And for those times where twenty four just doesn't cut it, which are incredibly few in my case, that would be my preferred solution. But right now, I don't I don't see myself doing any of those things. I I would just find myself wanting a very good 24 to 70 zoom because that's for for travel purposes i think that's the ideal lens if nothing else this was a good way for you to um experience wide angle and to really you know be in, in a sense forced to try it out and to put it through its paces and not shy away from it because 
in you know under different circumstances you'd be tempted to just not use the wide angle but here because you're reviewing it because you're deliberately trying to understand it and and wrap your head around shooting wider angles it's this sounds like it was a good opportunity to do that and honestly if the result of that is that you're now convinced that it doesn't have a place in your kit that's fine that's still you know that's still valuable in and of itself but at least now you have a, a concrete understanding of why and you know you 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 can appreciate better um where wide angles do become valuable and you know if if ever down the road you you need them like you said you you now know probably you'd go for a prime rather than um, one of the wider angle zooms yeah absolutely and i will continue to shoot at the ultra wide angle no no i mean i'm i'm absolutely sure about that i just don't think they have uh, such a lens has a permanent place in my kit but i'm perfectly fine with renting yeah. the lens for travel purposes or when a particular job requires it right, right like that's totally fine renting is always an option that personally i tend to forget about because the the number of uh, online shops where you can rent lenses in spain is not that great uh, but i was lucky that i found this one and uh, i will i will use their services again in the future definitely I, i'm very happy with the experience and this is a great way to get the lens you need just when you need it and you don't have to sink a whole a whole sum of money just to own a lens and have it sit on your bag for months and months and use it twice a year yeah and in, in a business context very often the the rental expenses are on the client not on you so it's right. it's not really yeah i i we we rent uh, equipment all the time as well and it's for the for the same reason and basically you just have to be careful that if you're noticing yourself renting the same kind of thing over and over and over again you know, at some point you got to make a call and say, well, we're spending this much money on rentals. Is it starting to get close to what we would spend on just owning it? And yeah. then it makes sense to buy, right? Or, you know, if in, in your case, if it's like a 35 or something that would stay glued to your camera all the time for your personal shooting, then again, it makes sense to own it because why bother renting for something like that? Absolutely. So another interesting observation well interesting to me at least <laughs> observation that i came away uh, away from the trip with it was that i had been struggling with the whole zooms versus primes debate uh, when you're traveling yeah and i've always been a, a prime kind of guy uh, when i used to own the olympus em10 and during my first few months of owning the a7 ii i bought the 24 to 70 and the 55 millimeter prime with it and I used the 55mm Prime a whole lot more because that's what I was most used to. And I and it's it just happens to be a fantastic lens, so I was very happy with it. And I still am, by the way. So I kind of, uh, after using the Zoom on my trip, merely because it was more convenient and because I only have one Prime, I had the feeling, you know, that, that, that I would perhaps be happier with two, three Primes, traveling with those and, and leaving the Zooms at home. But funnily enough, this trip has made me change my mind on this. I now feel that Zooms are absolutely the way to go for travel purposes. Uh, like, I, I sort of always knew, really, but I was there, there was some doubt. Uh, but now that, that doubt is, is completely eliminated as far as I'm concerned. And like I said, if I can have a nice 24-70 Zoom, that's all I need. Because for the type of shots that I take when I'm traveling, I don't need a fast lens. Like I don't need f1.8, f1.4, because I'm not gonna go for shots with super shallow depth of field. I'm not gonna go with for blurry backgrounds. I actually want to show where I am and and what's behind me or or what's in the landscape or whatever I'm trying to show in the picture. So 
for example, this past week, I've always shot at f8. All of the pictures that are landscapes or that there are in daylight, I've always shot at f8. Whenever I could get away with it, you know, considering the amount of available light, yeah, I always went for f8. If you're taking an indoor picture, of course, you have to go wider because there's just not enough light to get a sharp picture otherwise. But if, uh, anytime that I could, I'm I'm trying to get as as great a depth of field as I possibly can because I want to show more things in focus. And that's the most usual type of picture that most people take when they're traveling. Uh, uh, I don't know about you, but at least that's the case for me. And for that, uh, you don't need a, a really fast prime. It, it, you're going to be carrying a bigger, more expensive, heavier lens that's not going to add any benefits whatsoever to your pictures. And once you stop down a lens, even zooms are super sharp across the frame and the image quality nowadays is great. It's fantastic. So yeah, give me a 24 to 70 and I'm a happy man for travel. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's no real argument that zooms are the more practical set up for traveling, especially if you invest money in a very good zoom lens, uh, especially one that's in that 24 to 70 range, that that kind of sweet spot where you have just enough coverage on the wide side, just enough zoom um, to, to sort of capture anything that you realistically want to get. Um, and, and I think that's a perfectly valid way of, of traveling. Um, I mean, we know a number of photographers who travel with just an RX1 uh, or, or you know, the, the Fuji X100 series camera. Um, and that forces a number of constraints on you, but it also, uh, I found at least, is is kind of freeing in a way because you stop worrying about um, certain aspects of the photography and you focus in on just the storytelling, just the the core compositional elements and things like that. And there's there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of value in that as well, but for the vast majority of people and for the people who do not want to grapple with limitations, um, having an excellent zoom lens on an excellent camera is by far, by far the most satisfying way to travel because it ensures that you are equipped to tackle almost anything that you want to. And especially if you're traveling, you know, if it's one of those like once in a lifetime type trips where you really want to make sure that anytime you you want to get an image, you can get it as you, as you sort of envision it in your mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, there's no contest. Yeah, and cameras like the like the Fuji X100T, I'm, I'm sure they are super enjoyable to use, especially when you're traveling because they're tiny and, and they're just very, they're, they're lots of fun to shoot with, really. But there's one aspect that sometimes gets overlooked when using these cameras is that having a fixed focal length, the working distance to take your shot is kind of predetermined yeah. by, by the camera. Like if you want that much to appear in the picture, you have to stand that far from it. And that's pretty much it. The problem when you're traveling, especially in Europe in the summer, is that there are a lot of tourists, a lot of them. And sometimes you cannot stand where you would want to stand, or you have to sort of play with the focal, with the angle of view to kind of try to hide people that are walking nearby or something like that. And with a zoom, you can do that. So that's also a huge benefit that I only realized its importance in, in this past few weeks is that Sintra is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, it's a small city in Portugal, super green, super lush with vegetation. It's in incredible. But it was so packed with people that you literally couldn't drive. Like it, it the, the cars were stopped like 
one kilometer away from entering the city and there was no way to get in because the roads were collapsed. So we had to park like far away from the center and then walk all the way. And even then we had to stand behind super long lines to get into any buildings that we wanted to see. So it was a pain to, to travel in, in those conditions and even more of a pain to take pictures. And to the extent that you can alleviate some of those pains with a zoom lens, I say that's a, a, a more important benefit than the increase in image quality that you would get for from a, something like the RX1R2, for example. Yeah, I mean, the only corollary to that, the only way that that I would argue that is um, there's a there's an element of authenticity that is more or less important to people uh, when they travel and when they're bringing back images. For instance, if you're in a spot like that, um, of course, that sort of intuitively you want to try and get the architecture itself or, you know, something without the people, without the whatever. But the reality of what you're experiencing is that you're in a crowded place full of tourists. And the true story of your trip is that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes, it's a beautiful place. Um, and y you see what I'm getting at. Like, there's there's a somewhat more authentic um, type of photography that you're forced to do um, when you have that kind of focal length limitation because you can't sort of zoom your way out of crowds um or even sometimes through barriers right i don't know about you but that's something yeah. that i came across a lot is where you just you cannot actually get close enough to the thing that you want to uh, photograph by zooming with your feet it's just it's physically impossible even if you wanted to so in, in cases like that again it's uh, it's a limitation that you feel um but it's more or less upsetting depending on the kind of photography that you do right and that's what i find really sets people apart uh in terms of what their preference is, uh, the, the kinds of people who are doing uh, traveling with an RX-1 or, you know, whatever it is, a camera with a fixed lens um, or a, a fixed focal length prime, uh, they tend to be different kinds of photographers than uh, the folks who are running yeah. around with zoom lenses. And it's not it's not that one is better than the other or anything like that. I'm just saying that there's there's almost like an aesthetic difference in in what they want to capture and in the way that they want to remember their trip. Um, so there's, you know, it's both ways ways are valid, but I, I still do think that, uh, yeah, zooms are by far the more practical option for the vast majority of people. Right. And for example, I'm just now remembering about one picture that I took on the trip. Uh, it was when I was in Lisbon. And it's an old lady sleeping in the sun in the street, like near the near the sea. Yeah. And you can see her uh, from the side. I don't know if you remember that one, but I, I tried to take this picture like 20 times. And this was the only one out of those 20 right. that I could manage to just show her and not show anybody else in the frame. And this was shot with a 70 to 200 millimeter zoom lens. And it was very near the 200 millimeter end. Yeah, there's a lot of compression here. Because you can see that bridge, the bridge you can see in the background, the, the bridge is called like 25th of April Bridge or something like that, is the, the biggest bridge in, in all of Portugal, I believe, because it's massive and huge and it's really far away. So the, the fact that you can see it this big kind of tells you just how much how, how much compression there is, like you, like you said. Yeah. And I had to go to this extremely narrow angle of view because otherwise I would get people in the shot. And yes, like you said, perhaps that would have been a more accurate representation of the scene that I saw. But to me, those extra people didn't add anything. They didn't add any value to the image. Sure, yeah. I mean, that wasn't the story you were trying to tell. Yeah, exactly. And and because I had that particular lens mounted on the camera at the time, I could get the shot. And otherwise, I 
there's no way I could have taken this shot with a 35 mil lens. Like, no way. Well, not in one exposure, but yeah. Yeah, correct. Sure. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking <laughs> of that, that cool technique where you yeah, take yeah. the same shot like 50 times and then you do the yeah. averaging out. And anyway, um, cool. But that's, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's sort of where uh, Josh stands on this matter as well. And we we recently had him tell us about his trip and, and it sounds like you guys are now on the same page as far as uh, Zooms being the preferred glass for travel. And uh, I, I cannot possibly fault you for that because it's uh, it's very, very sensible. I mean, primes are cooler. They're, they're, there's something cool about shooting with primes and I definitely get it and I, and I absolutely love it. But at the end of the day, if I'm carrying five primes, uh, I'm going to feel it on my back too. So uh, I, yeah. I'm, I've made my peace with just living with zooms when I'm, when I'm away. In fact, I took the 55mm lens with me and I left it at the hotel the entire time. I never brought it with me and I haven't taken one picture with that lens in the entire trip. So there you go. Well, there you go. Speaking of your back, though, um, you've got some some refreshed bag thoughts as well. And this is obviously of great importance to any photo geek because we go through bags like potato chips. So yeah, <laughs> tell yeah. us about your... Tell us about the the sort of revelations that came to you with uh, with respect to bags on this trip. So right now I own two bags, which are the Think Tank Retrospective 5 messenger bag. It's a really great small messenger bag that's perfect for taking the camera with one or two lenses. And that's great. I took it with me because I kind of thought that I would be taking walks. And, and especially if I'm within Lisbon itself, there's less of a chance that I'm going to want some super long zoom with me at, at that particular moment. So I wanted to have the possibility of taking just one, the camera with one or two lenses with me when I wanted to go lighter. That's why I brought the bag with me. But then I also brought my main bag, which is the Leather Brixton by Ona. And uh, that's the bag that can fit my three lenses plus the, the zoom that I rented. But yep. since I left the 55 at home, I was only carrying the three zooms with me only I say but <laughs> that's quite heavy in and of itself and as I've mentioned before on the show and in the review that I wrote for Tools and Toys the main issue that I had with the leather Brixton is that being made of beautiful full grain leather it's a particularly heavy bag uh, and and it's not the most comfortable bag to carry on your shoulder especially when you're carrying a full load like I was but my main problem with the bag was not only how heavy it would it was, but how stiff it was. Like once you loaded it up, it became like this solid block that you're lugging on your back, and it's bumping against your against your waist, right. and it's just uncomfortable. And it looks huge. And I'm yep. I'm not a tall guy, so if you see the bag next to me, like it looks even bigger. You know what I mean? So I, I since I wasn't taking the laptop with me when I was away on the on the when I was taking pictures, the way that this bag uh, has uh, it's like a, a regular messenger and then there are several uh, padded dividers that you can arrange however you want to customize the interior and the way that it provides for a laptop compartment is by having a large divider that goes the entire length of the bag and you fit that inside and then the smaller dividers attach to that one instead of to the bag itself interesting okay that's how i normally have it set up because that's how it comes from the uh, that's how it comes in the box. Yeah. And uh, since since I regularly use it to carry my laptop, I never bothered taking the laptop divider out because I thought, 
well, it doesn't hurt. And when I need to take the laptop, I don't want to be like detaching the Velcro all the time because it's a bit cumbersome and, and, and it's uncomfortable. So I just left it like that. But this time I, I said, let me try to take the laptop divider out and see if it makes any difference. Because with the laptop divider on, it's also making the bag thicker because the it's sort of stretching the interior a little bit. Yeah. And I wanted to go, I wanted to make it as, as small and compact as I possibly could. So I decided to take the the laptop divider out and an unexpected side side benefit that I that I instantly felt was that the bag became much more flexible. And instead of being like this solid piece of leather that's bumping against my waist, it kind of molded into my body a whole lot better and it became it instantly became much more comfortable to carry. So would you say that it's now like given this modification which obviously makes a, a big difference to the way that it um feels over an extended period of time is the Brixton back in as your like primary travel bag because I remember you were quite frustrated with this aspect of it and and considering other bags because you didn't want uh, you didn't think that it was a good fit for trips where you're doing a lot of walking or a lot of uh just carrying a bag for an extended period of time does does this change any of that uh I'll have to wait till my next trip to to, to tell you that but okay. sort of my gut feeling is that yeah it will it will change the way I use the bag it will change how I feel about it definitely because the weight was never a problem this time and I spent quite a few hours with the bag uh, walking with it uh, and and yeah, I just uh, I never felt like it was hurting me. I never felt like it was like it was a problem. It was still heavy, no doubt about it, because I had three heavy lenses plus a small tripod plus the camera plus you know the filters and all of that. And at the end of the day, it becomes it is a heavy bag. There's it's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a heavy kit. There's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, yeah. but if I could, if I'm going to be traveling. Um, and, and it was also the, the matter that I'm carrying an extra lens that I don't normally have with me. And I wanted to carry the 24-70 with it because I I was, I was wanted to be ready in case the opportunity presented itself to do a side-by-side shot with both lenses and compare them. And, you know, those geeky things that we tend to do every now and then. And so I, I, I was consciously carrying more stuff than I normally would have, probably. And if I had carried an, just one, one fewer lens, I think it would have been totally fine. Uh, it was fine for the most part, so it would have been even better. Uh, and the, the main thing for me now is that I am now, I'm no longer going to sort of fear taking the bag out with me when I know I'm going to be walking with it. And in the past, I, I struggled with that a little bit. Like, I was a bit sad. I was a bit... Like, there was some uh, residual doubt that perhaps this wasn't the bag for me, but I think I'm I'm advancing in the right direction with it, and uh, it's too soon to tell if it's going to stick, but for now at least, I, I'm happy with the experience uh, this past week, and uh, yeah, and I love the way it looks, I love the way it feels, I, yeah, it's just a great bag, so. Awesome. We'll, we'll see how it goes. So when I went on my trip, uh, you guys remember it was uh, I, I just missed the release of the of the um, what was it called the Western Digital uh, Wireless Pro Drive, which is you know the the newest version of that really cool external drive that not only has like 
um, I think 500 terabyte or 500 gigabytes or a terabyte or more of storage. It also has um, a Wi-Fi router in there. It's got a backup power source for your phone. Um, but most importantly for photographers, it's got an SD card slot, which means you can just plug in your SD cards from the camera and get an instant backup without needing a computer with you, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I didn't get to buy one in time because they weren't out when I, when I left. Um, but I know that for me, that's going to be part of my um, strategy for, for keeping photos safe when you travel. And this is something that we've sort of touched upon before, but I was wondering for this particular trip, what was your uh, setup? Like what, how did you keep the photos safe? Was it a matter of just keeping them on the card and and not worrying about it because it was so short or did you have something more um, involved in place? Well, this was a, a, a happy coincidence because unexpectedly I ended up with what is perhaps the most robust and the most sophisticated backup strategy that I've ever implemented on a trip. And uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They say you have, they say you should have three copies of your data uh, at least in two different uh, devices and in in or or in two different locations or in one whatever the three two one rule I don't remember exactly how it is right but it's three two one I well I had four different copies of my data going on at, at any given moment in time which is the most I've ever had like I said and let me let me try to describe it the first one is of course the SD card itself uh, I carry several SD cards with me so I try to never run out of space yep. so that I don't have to erase them until I get home. Yep. And in this particular case I didn't even need a second SD card because my main 64 gig one was enough. Barely enough but it was enough. So there's that. I, I, I left the, the pictures in the card. I never deleted them. I still haven't by the way. So that was that was a very convenient thing to do. So that's copy number one. Right. But of course, you need backups because SD cards fail, they get lost, they get damaged if it rains, whatever. Uh, an SD card is not a device for archiving your pictures. It's just more of a capture device. And yep. they're meant to be offloaded at some point, right? So, so I, I took a, a Western Digital external 2.5-inch hard drive. It's a 500 gigabyte uh, hard drive. Yep. And it's, it's fairly old. It's a few years old already. I don't use it uh, every day. I don't use it as a primary uh, storage device in my routine. But it was just sitting around. So I, I said, well, I'm going to take it with me and try to keep a copy of the pictures in there. But since it's a pretty old disk, I didn't trust it enough to let it be the only backup of my pictures. So I decided to, uh, to the extent that I had free space in my MacBook Pro's internal uh, SSD, I tried to keep another copy of the pictures in the MacBook Pro's SSD besides the one in the external Western Digital hard drive. So that's copy one on the SD card, copy two on the internal drive of your MacBook, and then copy three on the external drive. Exactly. And I, of course, used Hatch, the great Mac app that we've mentioned here before on the show, to make those transfers. And it works great because it's super fast, it's verified, and I'm and I'm always happy and, and I can I trust it to keep my data safe. And that's a very important part of it too. And of course, if you want to take advantage of the same benefits, you actually get a very nice discount off of Hedge if you follow the link in the show notes. So please do that and uh, enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. I really can't recommend it enough, especially when you're on a sensitive 
trip like this was because if I miss those shots, if I if I lose them, that I there's no way I'm not driving back to Portugal to take them again. Is, is what I'm yeah, talking no about. <laughs> so that was important. Yep. And the the last, the fourth copy of my pictures was a totally unexpected one. Typically, when you travel and you go to the hotel to a hotel, or in this case, it was an Airbnb apartment. Uh, in the center of Lisbon, you don't expect the Wi-Fi to be particularly good or reliable or fast. And um, I wasn't expecting that, so I, I didn't count on it as a possible backup solution. But it turns out when we got to the apartment, the Wi-Fi was all of those things. It was incredibly solid, it was stable, it was wicked fast, like I could upload gigabytes in, in just a few minutes. Like I was super impressed with the with the speed and the especially the stability of the connection. It was, it was awesome. So that got me thinking, like, I can actually take advantage of this to make an, a, a, a cloud backup of my pictures. But then that's like a whole different kind of worms to open because I, since I wasn't counting on it, I hadn't done the research to choose one particular service. Like, I pay for extra storage in iCloud, but I have that mostly full already, so I wasn't sure how to how I could use that. Uh, Dropbox is the same story. Um, Google Drive, I just don't particularly like it, so I, I, I wasn't really into using that. But then I remembered that if you're a Prime Amazon Prime subscriber, as I am, you get unlimited photo storage with your Prime account, at least in Spain. You do, I'm sure, in the US and in Canada, it's probably the same deal. So it's that's I, I had briefly tried it before because uh, I, I it never stuck for me because they allow you to upload your pictures in full resolution in raw format, but they don't they don't support uh, displaying of those files through their web client. So you can't see the pictures. You would have to download them all or know the file name that you're looking for in advance in order to locate one particular picture, and that's not optimal. That's not something that I was very, very happy about. So I tried it once and I sort of thought, well, it's okay, but it's not for me. But for this particular situation where what I want is to just upload a bunch of files and then download the same bunch of files later when I'm at home or if I lose the data, it was perfect for this. So I decided to try it. And since I do trust Amazon to get their cloud stuff right most of the time, unlike Apple, uh, I was happy with, with using them uh, for this particular reason, and that's what I did. I installed the Amazon Cloud uh, app for the Mac, the Amazon Drive, sorry. Uh, I installed it on my MacBook Pro and started uploading the files at the end of each day, and I was just blown away by how quickly they, they uploaded. And no, I, I didn't see, I didn't get one single upload error in the entire week that I was there. And I uploaded something like 50 gigabytes of pictures. So that's definitely impressive. I'm very happy with how the system worked. And my mind was completely at ease. Because even if someone, somebody had broken into the apartment and stolen everything from us, at least the pictures would have been safe in the cloud. So that was... I cannot tell you what a relief that was. So that's actually pretty cool. Because that means you had a four-pronged backup system for travel. And that's obviously that's more than most people have. But what I like about it is that it actually involved relatively tiny amounts of effort on your part. Like it really wasn't 
a matter of a huge inconvenience or time no, no. to have all of this data backup um, in place. And that's, I think that's the biggest challenge with any backup endeavor is making sure that getting to that point is easy enough that people will be willing to do it even when they're on a trip. Right. Um, and that's a, that's a hell of a hurdle. So that's where something like hedge comes in handy. Something like having good access to Wi-Fi comes in handy if you're doing uh, you know, a, a cloud backup of some sort. And to me, that's one that would have been just completely impossible because there just isn't, um, you know, reliable internet access where where I was on, on my particular trip. But in cases like this, it's amazing because like you said, it means you have total peace of mind. Not only do you have several um, physical copies with you, but you've also got a remote copy so that if whatever disastrous circumstances emerge and you lose everything that's with you, at least you actually still have the photos. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's super impressive. And did you find yourself shooting only in RAW or were you hanging on to JPEGs as well for sharing or for things like that? Well, I never shoot JPEG. Like it's sort of, I, I just don't do it. So I, I, I always have the camera set to just RAW because what I do, if I, for some reason, want to share a picture directly from the camera, what I do is I use the Sony uh, Play Memories app that is built into the camera, and there's also a version for iOS. So I have that into my phone. Right. And the way that it works is that you, from the camera itself, you select a bunch of pictures that you want to transfer to the phone. There's even a there's a button on the camera that's a direct access to sharing a particular image, sending it to the smartphone. So you just have to press it once, and the camera starts the Wi-Fi and everything. And then when you launch the app the transfer happens automatically. You don't even have to tap anything in the app to get the picture. Very cool, yeah. The transferring uh, workflow, they have it very, very well designed and I really like it. So that's what I do. And the, pic the camera creates JPEG versions of the pictures when it sends them to the phone. So by the time they reach the phone, they are already JPEGs. So in a way, that's like having both, both things uh, at the same time while only uh, shooting raw on the camera. And is it a full-size JPEG that it does, or is yes. it a sort of resized for... You can configure it in the settings. Right, yeah. Okay, so it's the same as Fuji then, because you, by default, yeah. it's like uh, some smaller size. I forget the exact dimensions, but you can tell them to uh, to send a full-res exactly. JPEG copy over. Yeah, that's what I do. That's what I do, at least. For example, I like to share Instagram pictures when I'm traveling, uh, but I don't particularly care for sharing them exactly in the same moment that I took the picture. So I was perfectly happy to wait until I had a bit of a quiet time and I could just send the picture from the camera to the phone, send a bunch of pictures at once yeah. and then share them, you know, every few hours or share a couple pictures and, and that worked very well. But in this particular trip, what I ended up doing instead was waiting until I got home at the end of each day, downloaded the pictures because I wanted to take a look at them since they were all, most of them are wide angle shots. So I wanted to really uh, take a look at the detail in the pictures, mostly out of curiosity, you know? Sure, yeah. And uh, it was those pictures, once I had imported them into Lightroom and applied very slight edits, like adjusting the the tone curve and the very, very little, very little, very lightweight edits. Then I sent them to the phone from Lightroom and, and I just shared those versions of the picture. So in this particular case, I didn't I didn't share from the camera straight to the phone and then onto Instagram. I used the computer as a sort of intermediate step. But both methods I, th I find work very well. And I would 
typically choose between them depending on how time sensitive the pictures that I want to share are. Like if I'm really wanting to share something that's happening right now and that it will have lost some of its appeal if a few hours pass between now and when I share it, then yeah, I'm, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to share the picture with the camera and fire, fire up the app and off it goes to, to Instagram. Well, of course, you now also have another option, which is to post it immediately to your Instagram story. And then once you've had a chance to actually edit the polished version of the photo, put that up on your normal profile. True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's a whole new world. <laughs> um, the only other question I had about that workflow, because obviously I, I'm very familiar with doing it, um, the direct from phone to, or sorry, from camera to phone or camera to iPad or whatever. Um, when you were doing it on your computer through Lightroom, were you sending the photos back through Lightroom's um, catalog sync service or were you doing it sort of manually exporting it from Lightroom and then uploading to somewhere and sending to phone or what, like how are you getting the photo out of Lightroom back to the phone. Yeah, all the awesome automation that I had built into the backup strategy went out the window when it comes to sending pictures to Instagram. <laughs> because <laughs> I did exactly what you said. I exported from Lightroom, I uploaded to Dropbox, then from Dropbox, I downloaded into the camera roll in the phone, and then from the Instagram app, I opened the, the picture from the camera roll and loaded it up onto Instagram. So it was a mess. And was it because you didn't want to use the Creative Cloud um, Syncing because it would have worked perfectly for something like this, especially since you had access to good Wi-Fi. Yeah, but I don't have the Lightroom app on my phone, so that's where it would have broken, I think. Oh well, yeah, you, yeah, you would have needed that. Are you a subscriber though, or do you have like a legacy copy of? Uh, no, no, I, I subscribe. I have the photo, the, the photo the plan, plan. like yeah, the ten dollar one. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and it's like easily the best ten bucks I spend every month because I use it a lot, both Lightroom and Photoshop. So Yeah, yeah. I think it's a good deal for, for anyone who's even mildly into photography, really. You get access to two extremely powerful tools. And it used to be the case that we sort of tolerated Photoshop. It still is to some extent, but it's getting better, at least for the type of edits that I need to do. It's not terrible. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm still hopeful that somebody will create uh, a challenging competitor and we've been there with with affinity photo which is a great app yeah my, my money's on affinity yeah my money's definitely on affinity yeah i really i really want to see them uh get up there and uh, yeah we'll see we'll see what happens but more competition is always better yeah either way it's a cool workflow both on the um on the backup side and uh, and and the editing side of things, but I, uh, of course, with the caveat that you <laughs> should use the catalog sync because then you don't have to manually be yeah. sending files back. I like sharing the old school way, man. I'm like a caveman in that in that way. <laughs> I thought at least you would like airdrop them to yourself, but then I remembered that your laptop is like my computer; it's too old oh, for yeah. airdrop. So yeah, there's yeah. no. <laughs> those those super cool advanced new features on Mac uh, OS. Yeah. yeah, those those things that we don't know much about. <laughs> one day, one day soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah.